If you think you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. Ed Gross and me, Mark A. Altman, have a new oral history coming out this July from St. Martin's Press. It's Secrets of the Force, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the Star Wars saga. So wherever you buy books, audio and video, pick it up today, pre-order, and you can learn the secrets of the Force. And don't miss our oral history of Star Trek in stores now. And of course, nobody does it better. The complete oral history of James Bond in digital, hardcover, paperback, and audio. That is all. Hey, Darren, I'm watching the best show on television. You want to know what it is? What is it? I think I know, but what is it? Inglorious Trexperts. <laughs> and you're thinking to yourself, that's wait a second, that's not say. a TV show. It's but not it, a t- is. but it, is. it is. It is. It's a TV show because you can watch us on the Electric Now app. It's an app for streaming video podcasts as well as movies, television, and more. You can see us on demand on Electric Now. I demand it. I demand because I demand it. <laughs> Commodore Stone can watch us on the Electric Now app. And how do you get the Electric Now app? Because apparently people are having trouble understanding the concept. Just go to your app store from whatever device you're using or all of the devices you're using. And you download it to your phone, your iPad, your Roku, your whatever, whatever you, whatever you, whatever you have that streams, other than a Viewmaster. You download it and, and then you watch it 100% free. There's no charge. Yeah. There's no Patreon. There's no Electronic Frontier. All there is is a free app. So download the Electric Now app from your favorite app store and watch us on Electric Now. If you're a fan of Inglorious Trexperts, you're going to love Trexpert's Briefing Room, a Trexpert's new series. Trexpert's Briefing Room? What is that? I was about to explain, then you interrupted oh, me. I'm it sorry. Is, it's curated audio commentaries of classic Star Trek episodes from the original series all the way through Enterprise. You're going to love it as we explore the behind-the-scenes making of all these wonderful Star Trek episodes with cast and crew that you would never expect to hear doing audio commentaries on Star Trek. Sounds like fun. It will be. And you can find it on the Inglorious Trexperts podcast feed and on the new Trexperts Briefing podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's go see what's out there. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Doctorman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. But today, we're going to bab- be Babylon 5 spurts, as well as <laughs> Trexperts, because we're going to do a really interesting show uh, where we're going to talk about, uh, you know, take us back to the early 90s when, uh, when it was all the rage, Babylon 5 versus Deep Space Nine, Deep Space Nine versus Babylon 5. Everyone had a space station. There is a port of call for travelers from a thousand worlds. A sanctuary for those seeking peace. A haven for smugglers and thieves. And a dream for the future. It is a forum dedicated to the survival of the universe. 
It is a UN far in neutral territory. It is a space station called Babylon 5. Premieres Wednesday at 8 on Channel 13. Everyone had a space station. It was an unnecessary competition, but, you know, people need to pit things against each other. So uh, what are you going to do? So we thought it was worth, you know, in the light of HBO Max, uh, uh, starting to uh, show uh, Babylon 5 again. There's a lot of interest, renewed interest. It'd be worth, uh, worth the conversation. And, of course, to do that, we brought some experts on both these shows, passionate fans, professionals, etc. We have our, our recurring Trexperts from the Burnett work. Uh, he's returning to talk. He was a fan of both Deep Space Nine and Babylon 5. Mr. Uh, Robert Meyer Burnett, welcome back. Uh, it's good to be back. Always, uh, always uh, love to trek and gloriously with you boys. So it's good to be here. Our next guest, you know, is the writer of uh, such movies as Thor and X-Men First Class. Uh, he recently, uh, uh, his new show on Netflix, Dota Dragon's Fire, premiered to much acclaim and attention. And there's a lot of excitement going on. But he's not here to talk about dragons today. He, he Actually, Babylon 5 may very well be the show that he never worked on but led to the beginning of his career. You may you have Balan Five to thank for that. So uh, we'll talk about that. And joining us for the first time on the Trexperts, we're very thrilled. We're thrilled to have two-time Emmy winner oh, and God. Colonial Warrior. He worked on such shows as Star Trek Voyager and uh, and the Great Battlestar Galactica. But he got his start at Foundation Imaging, where he was the CG supervisor and a visual effects supervisor on Babylon Five. Fortunately, he didn't work on Crusade. So uh, we're thrilled <laughs> to have true. with us. We're thrilled to have with us uh, Mojo Adam Lee. Hey guys, how you doing, Welcome. guys? How are you? Good to be here. Good. You were you were you were like the um, you were you. I mean, next to Joe Straczynski, there was no bigger cheerleader in the beginning for Babylon Five than you. You were well, a big that's advocate. Probably true. For I mean, look, Babylon Five was my big break. So it was an incredibly exciting time for me to finally be starting some kind of career in sci-fi, you know, the, the uh, genre I love. And uh, yeah, I mean, Babylon 5 was a huge underdog. And honestly, it was, it, was it was Ron Thornton who started the visual effects and really was the visionary behind everything. When he proved to Warner Brothers that they could, they could actually pull off the visual effects with computer graphics, that's what got the show the green light because Warner's was worried about the visual effects more than anything, because that's what always put sci-fi shows over the top budget-wise. But once Ron did this uh, demo of some spaceship shots for Warner Brothers, they greenlit the show. Yeah, what, what people may not realize, because you know there was a lot of coverage of both shows and they were often compared to each other. Deep Space Nine was costing 1.5 million an episode. Their actual pilot was closer to 15 million. Uh, uh, the emissary two-hour pilot. <laughs> Babylon 5 averaged about $650,000 an episode and shot in a warehouse in Santa Clarita. So, no, uh, North you know, Hollywood. In North, North Hollywood. Hollywood. Yeah. I only was shot in Santa Clarita. That's right, right. that's right. And it really, it really was David and Goliath. Um, but I want to ask you, uh, um, Ashley, mm -hmm. you know, look, Joe Straczynski is an interesting character. I think we all acknowledge he's very talented and also very interesting. I, I say it both in a good and a bad way. Uh, uh, you know, there was a lot made at the time that somehow Deep Space Nine was ripping off Babylon 5, which I always thought was an absurd contention. Uh, can you sort of 
remind us of what was going on back then and what this was all about? Sure. You see, a beginning is a very dangerous time. Uh, actually, first, let me just say for the record that, uh, yes, Joe is an interesting cat, but uh, every interaction I've ever had with the man, he has been nothing um, but a, a gentleman uh, and kind and just uh, just a great, very smart human. So, um, you know, my my uh, all of this is is about what, 1995, 1996, when the Great Flame Wars erupted. Yeah, um, sure. in the in the wilds of the uh, of Usenet, um, as the the fans went at each other, uh, you know, Phaser and whatever the hell it is they use on Babylon Five, uh, over you know which show was was better, which show had better special effects? Did Deep Space Nine rip off Babylon Five? You know, all of these these things, um, you know. Arc comparisons, which if you think about it, the, the symbolism of that is just a little, mm, I don't know. Um, it, there was a lot. For me at the time, I wasn't working in, in the industry. I wasn't even within spitting distance of it. I was in a completely different life. I was a fan. Uh, and I, you know, I was, I definitely loved Deep Space Nine. Um, and I, thought Babylon 5 was fine. Um, but I was, I was very much a Deep Space Nine partisan. That said, second caveat. Uh, if, look, if you ask me today, would I rather rewatch an episode of Deep Space Nine or Babylon 5? I will tell you Deep Space Nine. If you ask me, would I rather rewatch an episode of Babylon 5 or Voyager? Babylon 5. There's no question. Um, so, so just to kind of put it in perspective, it's it's not about like, for me, it wasn't about being a, a test pattern Trekkie. It was, it was simply about, uh, you know, what I, what I found appealing in the storytelling um, and a lot of things that I found myself responding to. I, I think it was, um, it was really the first emergence of toxic fandom, mm. to be quite frank. Mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. the and sort of the, the first inklings that the internet could be a dangerous place, right? It was it a be weaponized. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like we should have taken heed, but but nobody did because it was a bunch of goddamn nerds. Everybody just thought that it was nobody knew what Usenet was, right? Nobody was using it except the super nerds. No one we were cared. slowly going crazy for the same no reason one. that yeah, no <laughs> one, right? So um, yeah, it was just a, it was a different place. It was a it was a different time. I mean. Um, and it was, it was really, it was, it was very tribal. Uh, my, my erstwhile writing partner actually wrote this amazing article, uh, about how the, um, the, the, the competition between Babylon 5 and DS9 fans online had all of the earmarks of a religious conflict. It was a really fascinating, very smart piece. And, you know, to this day, I, I think that, that he was right about it, but, um, Rob, yeah. you, you remember what this was like. And I mean, the contention that somehow Paramount heard this pitch uh, for Babylon 5 and said, oh, you know what? We're going to take that and do our own Star Trek show, just like the show that was pitched to us. I mean, I, I, I give them credit in the sense that I think, I, I, look, I, I think it spiraled out of control. I don't think it was really Straczynski who was fanning the flames of the plagiarism claim. No. I think it took on its own life. And, it, and, and, and you got to give them credit in a way they didn't have the marketing budget and the money and the, 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 the machine behind them. So they were only actually, working for Warner brothers. Yeah. It ha actually helped them to promote the show having this, this, um, you know, sort of ridiculous, uh, uh, 
you know, Deep Space Nine ripped off Babylon 5 uh, uh, thing going on. Wouldn't you say, Rob? Yeah, and I, you know, I never bought into that because, you know, with with Next Generation, it was a recreation of, of Star Trek, you know, sort of a reboot, the Enterprise, you're going out on strange new worlds and adventures. But space stations had been a staple of Star Trek all the way back to the second season in Trouble with Tribbles when we saw K-7 for the first time. And then during the movie series, uh, the Enterprise dry dock had an administrative facility. And in Star Trek three, you saw the beautiful space dock, which was gigantic. You know, it was huge. And then in other science fiction of the time, there was things like a mobile suit Gundam that took place on, the, they called them sides, but these giant space colonies that were based on a, a futurist's version of what a space station would be. And, and mobile suit Gundam, the same design for space stations were used for Babylon 5 that were, it was the same principle, basically. And I'm uh, the name of the actual guy who came up with that idea eludes me. O'Neill, so, the O'Neill Space Station. The O'Neill, yes, the O'Neill Space Station. So the, the idea of what Babylon 5 was and the idea of what Star Trek was, I think both organically uh, came out of, of various, you know, ideas, science fiction ideas, Star Trek ideas that existed. And it's like saying, how many movies, yeah, Deep Impact and Armageddon. I don't think anybody ripped anybody off. There was just something in the zeitgeist that people keyed on mm -hmm. and, and, and made into something. And I think what was really interesting, what people forget about what was going on in television at the time was you had first run syndication that was really pioneered by next generation for these hour long shows and, and Paramount embraced it. And you had all kinds of mission, the mission impossible reboot, everything that UPN launched with in 95, which, uh, which, which was after Babylon five, but the, the pilot movie that Babylon 5 had, The Gathering, was sort of like it could have been a one-off. It could have been this interesting. It almost was. Fiction. It almost was. Like it's a backdoor pilot uh, for a show. I mean, they always thought it was going to be a show, I guess. But I saw it as sort of a really interesting sci-fi TV movie. And even from The Gathering, which I recently rewatched when it was put up on HBO Max, I was like, wow, when I first watched it, I thought it was a little stilted and and maybe the production values weren't the production values of Star Trek. But watching it again, and I'm a huge Babylon 5 fan, I realized I hadn't seen The Gathering probably since it was first aired. I never went back mm -hmm. and rewatched it. Yep. It's pretty good. Like there's a lot of really interesting uh, concepts presented. You, you meet most of what would become the principal cast. Some people were swapped out. One Lita Alexander was in the pilot, but wasn't brought back into the series until later. So it was it was something that was unique and fresh. And the gathering predated uh, Babylon 5. I mean, predated Deep Space Nine's pilot. Uh, I think they might have aired both in 93. But I, I mean, I just think I, I saw them as two different things. Watching them, I thought Deep Space Nine was a, a great extension of the Star Trek universe. And Babylon 5 was something that was, it's not like space stations were new. The idea of them was new to science fiction. I, I want to ask Mojo a question about the uh, the effects. But before we do that, I, you know, Rob, I couldn't agree with you more about this. And it's funny because I remember at that time, this is a little before we did Free Enterprise, but um, shortly thereafter when we were in, in preparation for Free Enterprise, we were running around, you know, with meetings and casting and prep. And so I would uh, videotape 
Babylon five and deep space nine. So we, and then we'd go to like in and out burger and like at two in the morning, we all run, run back and watch to stay caught up on this stuff because we were yep. so obsessed and watched uh, these v- VHSs. It's funny because the first time I ever was uh, saw um, Babylon five was uh, I'd heard about PTN doing this and I'd gone to Fred Clark, my editor at Cine Fantastic, And I said, you know, I want to cover this for, for Cine Fantastic. And he said, why, 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 what is this? And what is this crap? I said, no, it's going to be like Star Trek. And he's like, oh, okay. And I remember, I mean, I did this huge cover story on it. And it was so much like in high school, the chutzpah of let's put on a show. And everyone, like they were in this warehouse in Santa Clarita. And um, they, you know, it was at the time, it was uh, um, uh, uh, Tamil and Tamita and yeah. Johnny Seca. And, and Patricia Tom and of course, Michael O'Hare. And they all were, it was so great because you're so used to going to the sets where everything is so regimented and everything is so, they just wanted people to cover this. They were just like, go, enjoy, walk around. And the sets, like the Star Trek sets, but perhaps even more so, were all, like the whole thing was just like being on Babylon 5. Like you would walk through the Zocalo and then that would connect to another set and that would connect to another set. Although then parts of them were very modular and would be completely redressed the same room over and over again. But, you know, it was just filled with um, all these, um, uh, you know, these, the, these, these, the sets of, of the space station, you really get lost in it. And uh, there was something really cool about it. And I love the fact that they were that kind of... Um, you know, going up uh, David and Goliath, where it's like, yeah, we know Star Trek has all the money and has the IP and all the interest, but, you know, we're going to try and do something cool. And of course, Joe Straczynski had this really, at the time, very novel idea of doing a quote-unquote novel for television, this highly serialized show. Um, Although you wouldn't know from the first season, which is probably its weakest season, unless, you know, for others who would say five. But before we get into sort of talking about what we think of the show and how it compared to Babylon 5, I want to ask Mojo, because Mojo has been very active in sort of upgrading effects. You know, it goes back to your pitch on the original Battlestar Galactica, where you wanted to... um, we did the living legend and you did a test and it was fantastic even before the star trek uh, uh restorations uh or the star trek stuff and then um you know you've been aggressively uh, pitching um deep space nine redoing uh the effects on deep space nine so it could be released in high def or yeah. god willing 4k uh you know now this i think came as a surprise this whole babylon 5 thing which you've been championing but this is not what you were championing this is a a a, a 4k scan of the live action and all they really did was up-res the VFX. They didn't do anything new with them. It's not the ideal way um, to potentially do this. And in fact, Babylon 5 was shot in widescreen. Uh, it was the first show to do so, but it aired in 133, even though it was shot in 185. And even now after the restoration, it's still being aired in 133. Uh, you know, So I'd love to, in the pillar bar format rather than widescreen, I'd love to hear sort of your take on what you think of what HBO Max has done with it, you know, if it, if it lives up to what your hopes were, what your hopes had been, and, you know, sort of what went off the rails in that sense. Well, certainly the new 4x3 version is the best way to watch the show. Um, when we were making the show, uh, we knew they were shooting in a way that would protect for widescreen. You know, all the action was focused in the middle of the 4-3 area. And they just made sure on the sides of the frame, there were no crew members hanging out or wires. So eventually they could expand the frame and make it widescreen. 
the visual effects weren't quite that simple. You know, uh, obviously, the computer graphics thing was brand new, and you know, a lot of people may not remember, but Babylon 5 was the beginning of the CGI industry. It wasn't some big ILM movie. It was Babylon 5. And we kind of made everything up as we went. And we were doing everything for three. And honestly, I'll admit, I, I think there might have been one or two memos about, you know, um, keeping in mind that maybe one day the show would be HD and widescreen. But we were so slammed just getting the 4.3 version done. We're just like, you know what, let's, make, let's just make the best show we can now because HD is barely a blip on the radar. So we just made the best show we could in 4.3, the way everyone was watching it. And the problem is when they did the DVD sets, they could open up the live action, but not the visual effects. There was no extra information in the visual effects. There was no way we could have rendered widescreen information back then. So they just chopped off the top and bottom and zoomed in to make it widescreen. So that already loses 25% resolution and it looks terrible. Yep. The other problem that most people aren't aware of is for reasons I still don't understand, they mastered the DVD set in PAL. Um, now visual effects to save render time are rendered at 24 frames a second and then expanded to 30 frames a second for broadcast. So for the DVD set, the visual effects and any, any shot that combined live action and visual effects went from 24 frames a second to 30 frames a second, and then for the DVD set to 25 frames a second, and then back to 24 frames a second or 30 frames a second for the American release. So that completely destroyed the image quality, the frame rate was destroyed, it created huge amounts of aliasing. And for 10 or 15 years, whenever it came out on DVD, I've always heard people say, I still love the show, but wow, those old 90s visual effects don't hold up. And they don't realize it was really a huge problem of standards, conversions, and cropping and zooming. And I've always personally, unless we had the opportunity to go in and redo all the visual effects in widescreen, I've always wanted them just to release the 4x3 version, the way the show was meant to be seen, the way it was really framed, and certainly the way the visual effects could be seen without being all scrambled. So that's why the 4x3 version is really the best way to see the show. It was the way it was intended to be seen. It's the only way the visual effects can actually be seen and retain the information we made. Right. Darren, you're, you're, you're not a huge Babylon 5 fan, if I'm characterizing that correctly. Yeah, I, uh, I, never, I never got into it. Um, but that doesn't mean that I didn't enjoy what they were doing. Um, I, I I watched it and I, the the pilot and I I thought it was uh, it was fairly interesting. The acting seemed a little bit stilted and the writing seemed to be a little bit too much. Um, but I liked the world that was being created. I thought it was interesting. I liked the designs. I liked the uh, I liked the visual effects. I I thought that the uh, that the sets looked a little uh, a little cheap, but not too bad. And it's interesting because when I got to visit the sets later, I thought, wow, they did an amazing job lighting these sets because in person, they're terrible. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. on TV, they looked way better. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I grew to in, enjoy it more. And as they started to um, establish uh, the new characters and, and uh, expand the stories a bit more, I got a little more into it. But... Uh, Honestly, in those days, I wasn't watching much TV anyway. So, uh, but I, I always remembered that it was a, it, it was an interesting alternate uh, sci-fi thing to watch. And anything more in the in the world of uh, sci-fi that's interesting was a great thing. 
but they were very aggressive about set extensions in an era when nobody was doing that. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when they were in the garden and you would see like the tram and the interior of the station, uh, there was a lot of stuff because they never went on location. Oh, go ahead, Mojo. So when uh, we were, I forget if we were already shooting Babylon 5, we might've been, I got a tour of the DS9 sets and um, it was fascinating because the DS9 Promenade set, absolutely phenomenal. I mean, this huge, mm-hmm. amazing set. That's a set you get lost on and really feel like you're on a yep. space station. And when I was on these sets, I was like, my God, this is just amazing. This really feels like I'm on a space station compared to our tiny Babylon 5 sets. But um, the, the, the interesting parallel was that because uh, Paramount had, you know, almost unlimited money to spend on prepping DS9. Yeah, they built these amazing, huge, incredible sets. Um, and Babylon 5 knew we would have to resort to uh, CG augmentation, set extension to make our world look a little bit better. But the issue on the DS9 sets, yes, they were huge, but to really film them properly, you need to fill it with extras and you have to light it and you have to set deck it, to set decorate it. And on a weekly TV show, they rarely had the time to actually fill the set with what they needed to make it look as big as it was. So the DS9 sets- Plus to get the scope, you had to be outside of the stage. Right, right. And so the DS9 sets were a lot more impressive in person, but I think on screen, Babylon 5 wound up looking like it had maybe a little bit more production value that's because exactly we, knew right. we had to augment stuff with CG from the beginning. That, that's completely true because Deep Space Nine, they were very proud of the fact that it was one of the first uh, two-story sets where like the promenade actually they could film up on the second level. But it was such a pain in the ass to get the boom up and to get you know the lights and the grippage and everything that they very rarely did it. And even if you look at Quark's bar, it goes up multi-levels. But it was it was always... So, you know, time consuming to try and do anything that was very ambitious. That's why you also don't see a ton of stuff where they're looking down from the second level or you're going up or, you know, and because they didn't do a ton of Steadicam either. You know, no. they didn't do the, the, you know, the Aaron Sorkin walk and talks, even though they could have on those sets. Um, if I remember, you know, I think this was just nine sets. Out. I think I think the sets, if I remember, cost like maybe seven million just to build yeah. the promenade. But I babble on five sets. They were all decorated from Ikea, basically. Right. Yeah. Pre-Ikea. Yeah. But yeah, (laughs) totally. And it looks that way. I think I wrote something recently about Babylon 5 where I said it looks like a stiff breeze will knock down the sets. But, you know, ultimately it was really the story and, you know, a couple of the performances that are the magic beans of that show that give it life. You know, it's like Andreas Cthulhu's as Jakar. You know, Peter Jurassic. I mean, you know, the late Mirror Furlong, you know, and Bruce Boxleitner. These are the people that brought that show to life because there is some great writing. There's also some very hackneyed and goofy writing. And Rob, we talked a little bit about this in terms of the superfluous humor. Yeah, I, I thought that that J. Michael Straczynski, for everything he did with this great grand scope of this show, he always resorted to some goofy humor that I thought... <laughs> sometimes was inappropriate and sometimes it undercut the drama but i have to say that you know first of all going back and watching it now i mean i remember thinking at the time like the visual effects were what they were but i have to say watching it now in four by three no other show looked like babylon five looked Mm -hmm. and despite the shortcomings of the of the sets and and the 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 cg 
the visual effects, there's something about it now that it works together in tandem and it feels of a piece. You know, the, the Star Furies that, of course, the fighter craft from Babylon 5, they were precursors to what they did with the Vipers. Mm -hmm. uh, ships could spin around 360 degrees and they were really playing with that. And the idea that, that the starships, the capital ships in Babylon 5 look like the things we're now seeing in the Expanse where they didn't have to look like airplanes or something. They're blocky and they look because they don't have to be aerodynamic in space. They look like battleships. And the mm -hmm. design work of the Babylon 5 station itself it really feels like it was supposed to be that way. And going back and watching this stuff now, I found myself sucked in. Like I, you know, I just threw on the guy. I'm like, what? it's on HBO max. You know, and I started watching it and before I knew it, I was five episodes into the first season. And I'm like, I, I love this. You know, I had I a similar sense of discovery where it, when HBO, it dropped on HBO max. And I was curious. And I watched the gathering and I had a similar reaction. And then I started to curate it because I skipped a ton of stuff in the first season yeah. and I got right to the shadow war. And then I skipped a lot of the standalone episodes, but I had that frustration because I thought this is so good and so inspired. And then like, for since I just watched the penultimate episode of season four, where there's this great speech where Ivana is talking about how Marcus sacrificed himself and, you know, and, 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 you know, she was never able to acknowledge her love for him. And it's a really well-written, beautiful speech about, you know, maybe not uh, as good as WandaVision, but it's, it's really a beautiful speech about the nature of love and everything. And then she says, well, if I knew he was going to die, at least I could have boffed him once. And it was like, <laughs> oh my God, yeah. it's like in the middle of this beautiful speech, there's, it, it, and that, it happens consistently throughout the entire series. I mean, I talked about it during our 101 thing where it says, uh, you know, somebody points a gun at somebody says, come on, make my solar year. And it's like, it's like, oh my God, you're undermining yourself at every turn when, you know, there's so much artfulness to this. And then boom, you pull, you, you break the balloon. It's, I mean, the, it's the number one thing I think that can undo a show, right? Which is just losing mastery of of tone. And I and I the thing I would ascribe that to, aside from the fact that I think that that Joe has a pretty cheeky sense of humor, um, and and I think sometimes can't can't resist the the impulse to to do those things, is I think the thing that hurt Babylon Five the most was the fact that it was twenty two episodes a season. I think mm -hmm. that if that show were sold today to HBO Max and it were eight to 10 episodes a season and all you had to do was like the good shit, um, I, I think it would be a different deal because then you wouldn't have him trying to bang out like 22 to however many episodes. he wrote most of those scripts. And he yes, was writing he himself, yeah. Yeah, which is insane, P.S., um, which is like, if, if nothing else, it's like, it's like, you know, doing the Iron Man thing. It's like, I don't know, like what you get at the end of it, except tired. Uh, but, uh, but I, but I do think it shows sometimes in the writing and just in, you know, if you think about as well, he's writing it, right. It's he's running it. So I'm sure that he's there all the time. Like when it's being shot, like, I'm sure that like, that he was sitting in post a lot. I can't imagine him not being in post and giving a shit what the what those cuts look like like no, you saw what he did in post later yeah so yeah, I, I, I can't talk even about that. get my head around like how much time it took him so I, I think I think the sheer scale of what they were asking him to do and what the time they were asking him to fill was what the problem was see I think the lack of resources apart. for them was great because they were able to do real audacious things and with this ad hoc first run syndication group they didn't have notes. You know, they didn't care. Do whatever you want as long as you're profitable, right? right? So, you know, he could do 
you know, uh, you know, take real risks and real gambles. You know, at the same time, I'm not sure people understand at the time this thing held, you know, hung on by a thread. They made the pilot. The ratings were okay, not great. Almost didn't get picked up, but it did, right? And then they did the first season, and then Michael O'Hare is shown the door for a myriad of reasons, you know, which aren't worth worth going into. And then it's almost repiled in the second season with Boxleitner, and then the show starts to get really good. And the third and fourth season are probably its best seasons. But every season, I'm not sure if they're going to get renewed. And the fourth season is the most interesting of all because, of the course, the five year arc gets basically truncated to a four year arc. By middle of the fourth season, the Shadow War is already over. The show out ends in the middle of the fourth season. <laughs> it ends yeah. in the middle of the fourth season, and, and then. They shoot a finale, assuming the show is going to be canceled. Then the show is renewed. They pull the <laughs> finale and hold it a year, so that they and they they plug in another thing that they shoot during the fifth season to be the fourth season finale, so they can use the finale they actually shot to be the the show finale. Yeah. So it's really a fascinating, uh, you know, fly by night. I don't mean that in a critical way, just like you know, dance that they're doing. Because again, it's it's not one of these. It's not the crown jewel of the Warner Brothers Empire. It's an afterthought, you know. And and it's amazing that in a way that TNT when TNT picked them up, you know, you think, oh, this is great. They're saving the show, but really the show was over. You know, it was just so they could say the five year arc went five years. And you know, I don't think anyone's favorite season is 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 the fifth season. Oh, it feels tacked on. But you know, I will say this: going back and watching the show again. Of all the science fiction television, the science fiction space operas that have ever been made, whether it was Star Trek, you name it, it's the one to me that really does feel the most like reading a hard science fiction novel, like reading yeah. a, some of the space mm -hmm. operas that Peter F. Hamilton has written or something like that. And I think of all the science fiction properties, I think it's ripe to take that story and remake it, uh, redo it from scratch but keep the basic bones of that story. Retell the shadow war, retell the fall of Centauri prime, you know, talk about uh, 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 what happens to the Narns and uh, just do the same story, but refine those scripts, have modern budgets, and you could end up having Straczynski overseeing the whole thing. One of the greatest five-year science fiction shows of all time by going back and retelling what's already there. Cause it already works. That show gets really scary I mean, the when the Psycor is introduced and the shadows are introduced, and, and the and with the uh, the Vorlons, there's so much cool stuff. You could even retain all of the designs and just update things and make them more modern, and it would make a hell of a remake. Yeah, and Walter Koenig is actually quite good as Bester. Yes. You know, he yeah. really you forget how good he is in that show, and it's nice to see him get the opportunity. Uh, um, to, to play that character. And a, um, a, this... a lightsaber can't kill him. That's oh, no, true. wait, that's Beskar. Oh. <laughs> oh, oh. But, um, you know, it, it, it's interesting because I don't think necessarily the resolution of the Shadow Vorlon War is so interesting in what their, their agendas were, but the character stuff that's going on throughout. I mean, when you look at where Jakar, for instance, starts at the beginning of that show, where he ends up as this really noble guy when he just seemed yeah. to be like the villain. That's terrific. And Peter Jurassic yep. seems like the comic relief. I, I mean, even, you know, less successfully was... Um, the late Stephen First, you know, who starts also as comic relief. He pretty much stays as comic relief till the very he was end. He's also but... the chairman of the social committee, wasn't he? <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, he was. <laughs> that means um, you have to this... drive him to the food king. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> it's a great character. And, and the real unsung hero, of course, is Bruce Boxlaner. And I'm, I'm partial. Rob knows we, we produced the Sci-Fi Universe Awards for many years. He was a, you know, a big supporter. He was a host. One of the nicest guys. Always a man of his word. Just a, And he a real fights sweetheart. for the users. <laughs> he was the first person to say yes to be in my Tron documentary. I was like, great. Now he, I have a documentary. He, he was just a lovely guy. And he, I mean, he, he walked the walk and talked the talk. You know, Michael O'Hare was a, a nice guy from the outside, but he was troubled. You know, I mean, it, per, personal issues, you know, that uh, it's, it's, you know, it's not a, anything he did wrong. It's, it's unfortunately, you know, he was going through difficulties and that's, it's, it's sad, but, you know, Bruce Boxlight approached something to the show that, you know, just a charisma uh, that, that Michael, uh, Michael here, you know, didn't, didn't have in the same way that, you know, sort of Claudia was more interested in Tamla and Tamita and, and, you know, um, Richard Biggs ultimately, you know, was better than probably Johnny Seca would have been had Johnny not gotten sick. Um, so, you know, in that sense, so, so uh, Mojo, you talked that you alluded to post-production. That's something I want to talk about. Why don't you talk about what you want to talk about with that? I also want to talk about the, this weird allergy to Foley and post sound, uh, that I think really hurts the show. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. Let, yeah. Okay. So, so, uh, post, well, I'll talk about the Foley a little bit. Look, that's not my department, obviously, but I have, yeah. I know what went on. But and you wish, if only you could have been a Foley artist. If only. <laughs> Remember um, those old Los Angeles uh, commercials in the movies? You go to the movies and in the calendar section. And it Los would, it Angeles would show Times you. commercials, yes. Los I, Angeles Times. Oh, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I movies. was in one of them, but go on. Well, who were you? The, the, the artist, the concept artist? In the, in the uh, art director one. Yeah. The best boy needs a spinner? No. <laughs> no, that's that's the lighting department, Mark. Yeah, no, I know. I'm, I'm kidding. I, that's that's the only one I remember. You didn't make the yeah. impression that the <laughs> <laughs> the body double. What I don't know. Anyway, okay. So Mojo, tell us about production. Fully. So, so I mean, my my kind of take on looking back at Babylon Five and DS Nine is. I, yeah, Babylon 5's arc and story and characters, no one's going to disagree that they're very compelling. Um, but I think the craftsmanship of each individual episode as a rewatch suffers a little bit. I mean, look, we did have a much lower budget, obviously. Um, uh, so I, 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 but I agree, the, the lack of background sound, the lack of excitement in, in, um, in that area does bring some of these episodes to a grinding halt when you have two people sitting in a room just sitting there on a couch talking to each other with nothing else going on now the reason for a lot of that was when they were in post cutting the show basically straczynski would sit on a couch he wouldn't look at the monitors <laughs> he's never gonna hire me again i have no reason not to say this but he would he would he would have the script open and while the editor was playing the show he would just listen and follow the lines of dialogue in his script. And if there was a moment where it was even slightly hard to hear a line of his dialogue, they'd have to turn everything else down. So those big dialogue scenes are very lifeless because Krasinski wanted to make sure everyone could hear every line of dialogue. And if there was any chance a sound effect or an ambient background sound would obscure it, it had to get down, it had to get lowered or just be removed. So I, think a, lot radio. Of the, I think a lot of people when they watch a show, don't recognize how much sound 
can keep that pace going. Yeah. But that that's one of the things that does hurt the show. It's just just the sound they, mix turns to nothing during dialogue. They scenes. don't realize how cheap it makes the show sound. Yeah, because it does the, hurt. An, yeah. the ambient noise of like the engine, the warp engines in Star Trek. Yeah, of course, you don't think about it. You don't think it adds anything to the show. But try watching that without that hum in the background. It deadens right. it out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if, the thing about how it was perceived, right? So from the from the fan point of view, like I remember these arguments, like about the fact that it sounded dead, right? On you know on Usenet, it sounds dead, and the the Babylon Five, like the 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 you know the the zealots, like they were like, no, it's an aesthetic choice. It's supposed to be like that. Like I swear to God, somebody actually said in a Usenet post, there's no sound in space. And I'm like, but they're inside. Um, it was, but it, it just kind of captured this this whole um, this whole thing where it was like the the show could do the show could do no wrong. And and what it reminded me the most of is uh, Trek fandom to a certain extent, right? The mm. way that that sometimes we would we would talk about Star Trek when everybody thought like it was the it was the nerdy thing, but it was our thing, right? And so it, it just, sometimes, you know, you sort of find yourself in a defensive crouch about some of this stuff and you're not mm -hmm. acknowledging the reality. And the reality is what Mojo's saying, that, that Joe is sitting there going, I, I, I can't hear that the coming out of Claudia's mouth. So can we turn down the ambient? You know, it's, that's not what the fans thought it was. Now, to I'll be fair, going back to post-production for a minute, the re now, Rob, when you were speaking before about just the look and the feel of the universe of Babylon 5, um, before Babylon 5, on any Star Trek show, any show that involved physical models for visual effects, they were always at a premium. On any look, because I worked on both Star Trek and uh, Babylon 5, on Star Trek, when they're writing the scripts, they're always keeping in mind VFX and crossing things out. I witnessed it. Any almost any first draft of a Star Trek script, they go in and just start chopping out VFX shots. Yeah. Whether they are needed to tell the story or not. And the other thing on Star Trek is the show is very micromanaged. When we started working on uh, DS9, I mean, the show had been on for decades or I don't know how long. So it's a well-oiled machine, a lot of people in place who do their job and a lot of levels of approval. Um, Babylon 5, Joe just said, do whatever the hell you want, guys, because he knew what Ron was capable of. He knew what the company was capable of. He trusted us. So when we got our scripts, there was never the cutting of shots. If anything, we would add shots. I remember yeah. specifically when we finished The Gathering and watched the first rough cut of the show at Foundation Imaging, we were identifying where we think effect shots would help tell the story and help the mood. And so we've just, we weren't getting paid for it. We volunteered after the show was finished to do like an extra dozen shots because we thought it would help the show. And that continued throughout the series. We didn't have five producers telling us to redo shots because three pixels were off. There's no Peter um, Lawrenson, yeah. Yeah, yeah none of that. So uh, honestly, in, in the four years we worked on the show, I think maybe three shots were asked to be redone. So we did whatever we wanted to, to make that universe feel big and expansive. And the sound in the live action may have been lackluster for the reasons we discussed, but in all those space scenes and the space battles, especially Severed Dreams, the sound is phenomenal. The, sha yeah. the, shadow, the shadow ships look great. The sound effects are scary. Oh, the um, screeching sound, those are the best. Is great. 
that's all great. But, you know, I can't get over the fact we're on a, supposedly on a Mimbari ship, which, you know, obviously was just a redressed hallway on, you know, Babylon 5 with some curtains. But, you know, they're walking and it's supposed to be deck plating and it's clearly asphalt. You know, they're clearly <laughs> walking on a, and it's like, this is the easiest and cheapest thing you can do is do freaking Foley and make them sound like they're on a spaceship and add a little space and pooping in the background. So it's to ambience to create an ambient, like an ethereal ambience on the, on the Membari ship. That's different from the control room of Babylon five or the war room on Babylon five, but they didn't have a sound, their own unique sound environments. And, 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 and that to me, I mean, watching it again, I'm enjoying it. I'm really, I, I really respect the show. I, uh, you know, the performances, but it's just like, Oh my God, this is like TV one one And it's like, it gets me nuts. Obviously. You know, I keep thinking about this, but, like I was a big fan. I'm still a big fan, as you all know, of Star Blazers. That uh, oh, we know. people know. Well, <laughs> you know, in Japan, they remade Star Blazers in the uh, 2012. So they did it. it. The original show is called Space Battleship Yamato. The the then they redid it. They basically retold the original story of that first season as Space Battleship Yamato 2199. It's the same story, but it's incredibly more sophisticated. And and it the characters and the writing was incredible and it was just so much better. And I keep thinking to myself that of all of the properties, when they talk about rebooting things, that you could go back and do that same thing because it would be so well served. And, and I think you'd go back, go, go to Straczynski, make him the showrunner, go to his original scripts, but do a little bit, get rid of the, the humor. You could really remake that show and it would be one for the ages if for no other reason then putting in that foley and the sound and bringing to life the the and that's what they should have done. I, what I like with you, Mark. I'm watching these episodes. I'm like, okay, you up you you spent six years scan rescanning it. Why not do a new sound mix? They did that for Next Generation. It was two channel stereo, and they remixed it in seven point one DTS. Why not go back and do that with what you have? I mean, it wouldn't be that expensive. And no. It it would open the show up so much. And I look, I agree. I think that it would, you know, they say, don't remake the good ones, remake the bad ones. Babylon 5, by no stretch of the imagination, is the bad one. But it is a show that could truly benefit, you know, that the scope and imagination by having more money, by having a bigger budget, by having but the doesn't tools, have the popularity the to now. warrant that. Mm -hmm. no, no, I mean, that was what that was, you would fight that because, but I would say, look, we're going to make this. The, it's going to be what the original Battlestar Galactica was to what Ron Moore's reimagining was. Right. That's so we, what I would use as a baby for you a little bit, but, Rob. Where I don't know. Look, there's you've got what like something close to a, a hundred hours of that show, and I would say like the signal to noise ratio on the stuff that was really great about that show, right? All the Shadow War stuff, like all those things, especially like after you know you get through the first season and you're past Michael O'Hare, who like who literally stopped the show dead every time he spoke like that i think if you took all that you took everything that really mattered right all of the episodes that were really crucial and key and you went through and you you did you truly remastered them right you did a true sound mix for like for those episodes and you did like an essential babylon five right and rather than trying to do everything they're like you could just pretend the fifth season didn't happen right for the most part I think, you know, maybe that might be kind of cool. Like that to me feels like something that would be achievable. Um, but I, I don't know, like, 
God, I'm trying well, to this imagine, show like, has been described as the sci-fi Lord of the Rings. So let it be the sci-fi Lord of the Rings, you know, let it be epic and let it be, you know, Amazon Prime or Netflix, you know, and big and 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 sprawling and eight to 10 episodes a season. Yep. That mm-hmm. is, is interesting. Um, I will say this. I, I mean, when I was watching War Without End, the two parter. And it was very uncomfortable to watch Michael O'Hare and Bruce Boxleitner because I kept thinking to myself, I just can't imagine what this is like for Bruce Boxleitner having to act with Michael O'Hare and just it's how like, uncomfortable. Is it, is it like meeting like your your wife's ex-husband? Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> probably how it would have Hey, man. Been. Yeah, it's yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah <laughs> no. Um, yeah, no, she still likes that. But uh, I couldn't uh, even enjoy the episode because it was just too painful. Not, you know, <laughs> Michael O'Hare was not great in that episode. He, he seemed a little zonked out. But it just thinking about, oh, my God, this must be so hard for Bruce Boxleitner. And, oh, my God, what is Michael O'Hare thinking? That's all I could do for, for, for two hours while I was watching that episode. But, Mojo, <laughs> back, back to your statement of is there enough popularity for the show to warrant that, you know, bit of a redo yeah um there isn't even enough uh, uh fandom I- energy for uh, deep space nine to get that upgraded to hd so yeah, yeah. i mean the, it's there's not a lot of incentive for the studios to do the stuff that needs to be done these days and that's the unfortunate thing no i i you know the, the comparison with battlestar galactica you know i'm not as much as i love the show i'm not sure there's a good enough reason to remake it uh, other than production value. Because look, the original Battlestar Galactica, obviously completely different from what Ron Moore did. Mm-hmm. Ron Moore recognized the unfulfilled potential and the maturity inherent in the Galactica concept and ran with it. Babylon 5 doesn't really have that. I mean, Babylon 5 is a mature adult, you know, uh, at times dark show as it is. So I don't think it would warrant a tone change um, I don't think it warrants a change in the overall story. So I, I don't know if Warner Brothers would remake it as a streaming show just to make it look better. Plus, I mean, right, maybe I if it had that 50-year hardcore following Star Trek had, sure. But it's always been a bit of an underdog. I mean, I would like to think that maybe with the new uh, HBO Max release, um, maybe they'll discover it's more popular than they thought. And maybe they'll be interested in doing something more with it. Yeah. Well, maybe they'd take the uh, the the CBS All Access tack and just have the characters say fuck once in a while, you know. <laughs> or you know, you could just go the opposite direction of the Ron Moore Battlestar Galactica, right? Where he kind of took Glenn Larson and a Donald Belisario, and he kind of updated that to like modern storytelling. What if you got you know like I guess it down Glenn Larson and Donald <laughs> Belisario to take Babylon Five and remake oh. it? Look, I I, I think. What I'm what I'm thinking is, yes, the, the building blocks are already there, but I think that that the show, it was it was very herky jerky. You know, it, it, it creates these great moments or it has great two part episodes and then it lets you down. It feels like you're constantly being whipped around. And I think what you really could do with a, a not necessarily a reimagining, but again, a remake, you're remaking the show and concentrate on what's best about it. And you could turn it into one of the most epic science fiction shows ever done uh not just upgrading it but getting rid of all of the the stuff like like ashley was saying that's not great and and give it mark you were saying 10 episodes eight to 10 episodes a season and just reimagine it and make it truly epic it's funny you say that because when i'm when i've been binging it at night you know i've been on hbo max like i'll watch an episode it's so good right i said oh i'm gonna stay up and watch another one 
And then inevitably the next one disappoints <laughs> me terribly. And I'm like, yeah. why did I stay up? I'm exhausted. You know, so it's it's so interesting. And I, you know, we gotta also single like single out. I love what um John Vulich and Optic Nerve did with the makeup. Oh, absolutely. No foreheads and noses. It's like the makeups are great. They're expressive. They're imaginative. They're well designed. There are a ton of alien species, and on this budget, again, six hundred fifty thousand episode in nineteen ninety three. That's crazy. And you know, along those uh, lines, um, a lot of the you know a lot of the wonderful visual things came from uh, Ron Thornton's uh, secret weapon, Steve Berg. Steve Berg, yeah. Um, mm-hmm, who mm-hmm. did a lot of this stuff uncredited and uh, unknown to a lot of people. But mm. he touched so much on that show that uh, th- that sort of style and that uh, really big creative mind uh, really shows through in a lot of it. Yeah, that's a really good point. Well, let's also talk about, you know, the, the excuse for doing this on the Trexperts was to sort of compare and contrast the Deep Space Nine and Babylon 5, and it's turned into more of a Babylon 5 discussion. I, I want to ask you guys, because obviously Babylon 5, I think, is going through a renaissance right now. Deep Space Nine kind of has, thanks to Netflix, um, I think, it, the Netflix effect, but it didn't have the benefit of being remastered. So for some people, it's still difficult to watch in standard depth. Um, you know, we've talked about this before. And of course, we're all huge Deep Space Nine fans. Like, oh my God, it would be amazing if they would do high deaths. But can you talk about the challenges and why, you know, unless Paramount Plus really steps up in a big way, it's very unlikely that we're going to see some kind of uh, Deep Space Nine restoration. It's just money. Yeah, I mean, what people don't understand is the restoration of Next Generation took four years. And it took four years of a team at CBS Digital working around the clock you know, during every workday, and they went through thousands of boxes of negative. And basically what you have to do is you have to take the show through post-production again. They went back to the original edits. They had to find every piece of negative and recut the live action material, not even the visual effects, but the live action material uh, together, finding all the scenes and the takes and the audio. And, and Next Generation was better archived than Deep Space Nine was so even more difficult there, but also even the visual effects. I mean, the visual effects for the most part, when Deep Space Nine began, it was shot like Star Trek was. It's all model work and it's all compositing. And when they had like special effects shots that had 10 or 12 layers of of film that were optically, well, not optically, they were combined on videotape together. They were composite on tape. Some of that stuff has shrunk, you know, and they have to use computers. They have to go in and, and, and fix the pieces of uh, if the warp if the warp then the cell pass or something or the light pass is shrunk they have to go back and, and fix it and it's an enormous enormous time consuming undertaking it's you can't just use some deep learning ai and upscale it you know from standard def to 4k it just doesn't work like that you've got to mm-hmm. go back to those original elements mojo what do you think realistically i mean you've been involved in consulting on this yeah well, I mean, look, uh, Rob knows a lot about the process. It all it all just comes down to money and desire. I mean, right. from the calculations I did, which kind of put things in a new perspective for me, because I look, one of the issues we knew was that um, Next Generation's remaster was kind of on the cusp of the end of physical media. People already bought it. So we all know the story. They didn't make a lot of money back on the Next Gen remaster. Yeah, streaming on- rose up while we were making the Right, right. 
So now the economic model is streaming and how many subscribers you get. So, so the idea that they won't remaster Voyager and DS9 because the DVDs of next year, the, the, the Blu-rays didn't sell well, that's no longer really the equation. It's all about yep. streaming. And the rough calculations I did said that for the cost of maybe five or six episodes, episodes of Discovery or Picard, you could remaster all 14 seasons of DS9 and Voyager. Yeah. So they're spending so much money on these new shows. And I would say, look, when CBS All Access started, I can't tell you how many times I read CBS saying, Star Trek is the crown jewel of CBS. We respect this property more than anything else we own. Well, then let's see it. I mean, if you spend the money to remaster Voyager and DS9, no, th there may not be a legitimate path an accountant could write out to how it would be profitable but does it look good for cbs to treat star trek properly and bring it to the modern age will they will they get more old school fans to subscribe when they say all 14 seasons are out remastered i think so and even even if cbs could prove those remasters will never make their money back it's not like cbs and paramount as a company is going to go under because they remastered Voyager and DS9. It just okay. makes them look good. And if they think Star it Trek is that popular It gives them exclusive them, content. What they do right. is they don't make those available to anybody outside the Paramount Plus ecosystem. Right. You know, you don't even have to do it on physical media anymore. I don't think it would sell very well. Uh, no. You know, and 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 uh, and then, you know, you have it later on for syndication or whatever you want to do. Because Absolutely. Star Trek is something that's still, uh, you know, like MeTV and these people still air this stuff, you know, and then you have the new masters, so it's future proof because you have, you know, the 4K or the, the HD at least uh, versions of these, where you know nobody's going to be showing these standard def versions. Any, no. you know, no. The, and and content future. is king. They're already they're not just spending the the money on you know Picard and Discovery and Lower Decks and Prodigy and maybe Section Thirty One and maybe Strange New Worlds and all of this because, you know, God damn it, like they just love Star Trek that much. There's spending that money and they're making all these shows so they can flood the zone, man. It's what they've got. Like they need to create the content so that according to themselves, they can have new Star Trek content basically every quarter. Oh, well, holy shit. If you can remaster 14 seasons of Star Trek, right. And make it look that beautiful and just have it and just, you know, release a season at a time. You're talking, you're not talking about eight to 10 episode seasons. You're talking 22. I mean, that's, 20, that's 26, a ton. 26, 26, my God, you're right. That's a ton of content. Well, not only that, when you think about it, like what Mojo was saying, if you're looking at a modern, I mean, they'll never release their budgets, but you're talking eight to $10 million an episode. That's what they were spending on Discovery and Picard. Right. Uh, they're spending more than that. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. a lot more than that. But With uh, the reshoots I, and everything, they're spending more than that. A, a lot more than that. It would cost $20 million tops to remaster 172 episodes of Next Gen. That's right. 172 episodes. Voyager might be a little bit more expensive because there's more CGI involved and there might be more recreation of shots. I don't know, Mojo, you could speak to that. Yeah. So you're looking at a $40 million investment for over 300 episodes of television. 350 episodes exactly. of television. Exactly, exactly. And uh, compared to four or five, like you said, Mojo, four four episodes of discovery but here's the thing you're going to get how much more bang for your buck you get 120 or you get 26 episodes a season 22 in the first episode of, of or 20 episodes in the first season of of deep space nine but how much more content are you getting mm -hmm. break that here's, down 
on an episode by episode basis, you're getting 172 episodes of, of Deep Space Nine for what two episodes of Discovery costs? When you put that up on your streaming shelf, what is that worth? No kidding. Mm-hmm. Here's the here's the counterpoint to that, however. Because of the immense saturation of these shows on every streaming service, yeah. their argument is, well, we've had the shows on here for years. And who is going to watch these shows again? You know, they're already watching them to some degree. So why should we spend this much more money to get something that maybe gives us a little boost in viewership? Because, well, because Star look, Trek right is going to be watched for decades yes. to come. It's a timeless and CBS show. All Access, Paramount Plus is a subscription-driven model. And the reason why they greenlit Discovery, the reason why they greenlit Twilight Zone and then eventually canceled it because it just didn't, didn't do for them what they wanted it to do is they th- they felt like Star Trek drove subscriptions. So if you're living in a world where you can say, okay, Netflix, we're letting your streaming deal on these shows expire. And by the way, they do really well on Netflix. Um, and then we're going to take it all back, right? Your window is going to last until we're done with this remastering process. The same people they were trying to get sub- to subscribe to Paramount Plus slash CBS All Access are the exact same people who would give a shit that it would feel like they're seeing Deep Space Nine and Voyager yeah. in a whole new light. And right. Here's, but the, there's, there, here's there's, the other there's thing. A lot. Let me just say this. Yeah. Unlike, unlike Amazon and Netflix, which um, are firmly ingrained internationally, Paramount Plus is not going to have a robust international presence. So you also can sell the, the, these new versions internationally. You can even sell them to Netflix internationally. And there's a huge amount of money. We know that's how Discovery basically got funded at a, at a, at a Netflix paying whatever it was like a ridiculous amount of money uh, for international rights to Discovery initially. Yeah. Well, also, if you think about for Friends, how old is Friends? 25 years old? Friends is 25 years old. Netflix for the last year. It's old year, enough to be a friend. Well, for the last year that they aired it, <laughs> for 2020, in 2019, Netflix paid a licensing fee of $100 million to run Friends because people watch Friends all the time. Yeah. And right. Star Trek but, is a perennial, Star though. Trek is not Friends. No, yeah, but, but it, Pe- no, Peacock's but it's, building its whole thing off The Office. Now, I'm not saying Star, this is Deep Space Nine and Voyager of The Office, but... You know, there are people who may not subscribe to Paramount Plus for uh, the new iterations of Star Trek because maybe they're old school fans. They don't care about the new ones, right? Maybe they do, maybe they don't. So, but it might be enough to get yes. that audience to subscribe to Paramount Plus. Oh my God, I'm going to get uh, Deep Space Nine in pristine. I'm going to get Voyager in pristine. Uh, and, and, you know, and then obviously you have to find ways to, 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 to uh, educate the audience about that because they don't know what that means. They, but, didn't, know, know. they didn't do a good job of that when we remastered first Next Gen need, either. But first you need to educate the people making the decisions at the studios and the streaming services Yes, so that they know it's mm-hmm. a big deal. Right. That's well, the event- main thing. Eventually, if, if there were any, if there were any Mavericks running these things, they would be done already. Yeah. Yes. But there's it's just not. In 10 years, the, the argument I would make in 10 years with the new generation coming up, no one is going to watch Deep Space Nine or Voyager because of the image quality. Yeah, we, we live in a in a high def era. We're now almost 20 years into the HD era. No one is going to go back and watch standard no. def shows, nope. especially when you want to come back and go back and watch something again and again. People who love Star Trek watch it over and over and over and over, just like we watch it as kids. Building building on what Mark said, um, I agree completely that 
uh, I think a lot of original Trek fans are holding back on subscribing because a lot of original Trek fans aren't as thrilled with the new, new series. And 14 seasons of DS9 and Voyager going up in HD would, I think, create a lot of goodwill that would finally make old school fans subscribe. Um, also, back to Babylon 5, Babylon 5 is getting a whole shitload of press and, and, and steam right now yeah. because of this remaster. They haven't remade the show. They haven't changed anything. They just put it back up. And uh, it'd be very interesting be... to see what the analytics are. What, what yeah. we really, is it just in our sci-fi geek ecosystem or is it really doing real numbers for HBO Max? Because but certainly there, there's no doubt that if DS9 and Voyager were to have that same re-premiere, people would be just as, if not more excited about mm. this. And they'd be generating Absolutely. tons of publicity for all of Star Trek. Right. For sure. And I, and I think, you know, there's a lot of people when they finish, I know this from my own household, is that you're looking for something to watch again, you know, and, and I've watched Elizabeth dip into these old shows. Like she started watching Cheers from the beginning. And, you know, I don't, I never watched sitcoms growing up. I wasn't, I started watching Cheers, something I'd never watched. It's delightful. You know, I'm watching and I'm going, wow, this is amazing. And, and suddenly you find yourself and it wasn't out of nostalgia. It was something I really hadn't seen before. Yeah. And also Kelsey Grammer is the captain of the Bozeman. Yes. <laughs> and well, he's we're watching. I'll take you and raise you one. We're watching the Dick Van Dyke show because right. my son loves WandaVision. He wanted to watch Dick Van Dyke. And if oh. that had not been mastered in high def, I don't know if we would have watched it. But, you know, I was all shot on film. It looks gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, CBS did that with like uh, I Love Lucy. And it, it, why they didn't just go through, I mean, I know why they didn't do it because it was an economic thing, but they should have remastered Star Trek because the thing about Star Trek is it is a period piece of the future. It will never date. No. People will be watching the, the, the uh, maybe the original series will for some people, it doesn't for me, even the remastering is a little hit and miss, but the, the modern Star Trek shows, people are going to be watching those forever, forever, forever. I mean, in Actually, 30 need years. need to remaster the original again and either do new effects or in go back to the original K. effects. Yeah, yeah. Because, right. uh, you know, it's neither fish nor fowl, uh, you know, because they, they just didn't put enough money into it, which well, is another, awesome. Another, another simple reason for CBS to remaster all of Star Trek in HD is, look, if one day they decide to sell Star Trek to someone else, they're going to get a lot more money if all the shows are future-proof and in HD. Right. Yeah. Everybody's libraries are, are, you know, I mean, the most obscure movies are in high def available. The fact that Star Trek, the crown jewel of the CBS Paramount, you know, two significant shows of the history of Star Trek or one and a half are not in uh, <laughs> uh, high def is 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 absurd. OK, well, look, uh, well, we're, can we're I running... make one more point about yeah, this? Sure. Here you have the first Star Trek show that has a black captain as its lead. And the first Star Trek show that has a female commander of the starship. Two point. shows that should be getting reinvented, right, right. looked at all the time in this day and age, and they're not available. So couch it as a it's a it's it's racist and sexist that you haven't mastered Deep Space Nine. Like you what you got to do, and in That's fact, you know, take some of the marketing money for Prodigy, you know, which Kate Mulgrew is Janeway, and put it into Voyager. So these kids that you're supposedly trying to get into Star Trek can actually see Star Trek, you know, right. they're going to see Janeway on Prodigy, let them see her on Voyager, you know. I would argue, I, ne I never standard def. I never used I would Prodigy, I was Voyager on American first. Online. <laughs> I like okay. that one song they had. 
Oh, Jesus. Okay, smack my... Yeah, okay. I'm going to smack you up! So Fire before, starter. Before we, uh, before we go, <laughs> I want to ask you, you know, favorite uh, episode of Babylon 5. Look, on our 101 countdown, we talked about severed dreams. President Clark has announced that the attacks will continue until the Mars Provisional Government accedes to martial law. So far, there's been no reaction from any of the outer colonies concerning I'm these sorry. attacks. Jane, I'm sorry to jump in like this, but we have to... The colonies at Orion 7 and Proxima 3 have just broken away from the Earth Alliance in protest over the bombing of Mars. They're setting themselves up as independent states until such time as President Clark is impeached. Rick, don't do this. Clark doesn't want this information released, but we have to go with this now because I don't know how much longer we can stay on the air. Armed troops have begun moving in on the ISN broadcast center here in Geneva. We just saw them coming around the corner. We're trying to get a camera down there to document what's going on. I, I can hear gunfire now up here on the 14th floor. Listen to me. There's information you don't have, but going on for the last year, we haven't been allowed to tell you. We Major Ryan, Captain, we just jumped in from Orion 7. They've declared independence. We've heard. What's the reaction? Clark's afraid of losing the other colonies, so he's sending his elite forces to seize direct control of any colony or outpost that might move against him. If he finds out we're here... It's too late. He already knows. We intercepted attack orders relayed to the Agrippa and the Roanoke. They're hooking up with some heavy reinforcements on the way in. We better pull out before we jeopardize Babylon 5 further. Major, the ships receiving the attack order were already on their way here. He doesn't want to risk Babylon 5 breaking away. So those ships are under orders to seize command of Babylon 5, arrest and detain its captain and the rest of the command staff, and to put this station under the direct authority of President Clark and the Night Watch. The other governments won't stand for it. They won't intervene. All the major powers are divided, distracted, busy with their own wars. We're on our own. I'm sorry to be the bearer of such bad news, Captain, but I thought you should know. How long until they get here? Six hours, tops, maybe less. I better get back to my ship. I should be there when the others arrive. If you think it would be any help, we could try to jump, maybe draw some of the fire away from Babylon 5, give you a chance to negotiate. No, thank you, Major. If this is where we make our stand, then this is where we'll do it. I know we're all avoid a head-on confrontation with Earth, that somehow we could stop this train before it went off track. But this train is heading right for us, and there is not a lot of time. So we have only two options. We fight, or we surrender. If it was just us, hey, it pays you money, it takes you chances, but it's not just us. It's a quarter million people here and billions more out there counting on us. Now, I promised the land that we would draw a line against the darkness no matter the cost. Well, now we know the cost. There's too much at stake to walk away now. If we surrender, they'll court-martial us. If we fight and lose, they'll probably kill us. They probably will at that. 
So the choice is yours. I say fight. 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 Is there another significant episode that you really... I do feel we may have missed a few on our countdown after re-watching it. Uh, but I'd love to hear if you have an episode of Be- Deep Space Nine that, of Babylon 5 that's significant to you that you want to showcase here. And I'll start with uh, Rob. Uh, you know what? I just watched it again, and it was the answer. It- Zaha Doom. I let him go. But there is a price tag attached. You've been trying to help me so we can understand each other. It's not what I want anymore. I want you to teach me how to fight them, how to beat them. Because sooner or later, I'm going to Zahadul. I'm going to stop them. If you go to Zahadu, you will die. And I die. But I will not go down easily, and I will not go down alone. You will teach me? Yes. Yeah. Which was the right. final episode of what season? Season two, two. Three. was three. Season? three. Season I think three. it was three. Yeah, yeah. yeah Zaha three. Doom, where where uh, um, Sinclair, uh, uh, the wife comes back, you know, and and uh, yeah. it, it, Melissa it, Gilbert, it, Melissa Gilbert, and it was, I mean, talk about sticking the landing. Uh, that was a scary episode. I really like Zaha Doom and great effects too for Zaha yeah. Doom and the jump. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that was great. John did a yeah. good job with that. Yeah. Really, really, really nice. I, I, I agree with you, Rob. That's a great episode. I really like Geometry of Shadows, mm-hmm. which is a, yeah. a terrific episode. I mean, a lot, most of the shadow stuff was great. Yeah, you know, and then some of the stuff at the end when the war is ending is 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 pretty good too. Um, I miss the foley, but uh... <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, Mojo, what about you? Favorite episodes? Um, I think uh, Coming of Shadows is one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Coming of Shadows is really where, I mean, the, the shadows really become uh, a major force in it. Uh, it was really the beginning of, of the change and dynamic between Jakar and Londo. Yep. Yep. Um, a lot of things really started picking up from that episode. Uh, and uh, it was also the first episode I got to direct a space battle on. So it's a little uh, dear to my heart. But I rewatched that one recently and it does hold up. It's a great episode. There's a lot of dark foreshadowing in there that I really like. And Mr. Morton is creepy. Oh, he's he's such a great character, man. He really yep. is. You know, did you see the episode where uh, Brian Cranston is the, the ranger, the captain? Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That was just, you know, it was hysterical. Um, what about you, Ash? Favorite, 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 maybe the other than Severed Dreams? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I was going to go with Zaha Doom, um, yeah. basically because it shows off everything that I actually dug about that show. Like, and I, like when it kind of got into the mythology stuff in an, in an interesting way, um, and it showed it versus kind of talking about it. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and like, and in a way that kind of hits you emotionally, like to me, like that's the stuff that like where the show is, is, is firing on all thrusters. It's like, yeah, it's like, I love like so much of like the idea behind so much of the, the special effects. I love the fact that like, it was so pioneering in, you know, how physics works in space, you know, it's like, I loved all of that, but when it actually managed to take like those big heady concepts and like, and bring them down here, like that to me is like, is when it works. So that's why I, I love Severed Dream so much. That's why I love Zaha Doom. I also want to say about Zaha Doom. The other thing I really like about Joe Straczynski is he, he is a real science fiction fan. He knows his yeah. literary science fiction. He hangs out, you know, he's very active in science fiction fandom. He's a very successful comic book guy, but the casting, some of the people that he threw roles to like Jeff Corey in Zaha Doom, you know, yeah. dig like the Troglites do, you know, Leonard Nimoy's old acting coach who had been, uh, you know, uh, during um, Black had been blacklisted. Yeah. I love that Jeff Corey is one of the shadows. I think that that's that's really cool. And then, you know, like some of this guest cast is, is great. My, you know, not a great episode, but Michael York is King Arthur. I mean, he you know, he, there are a couple of really inspired uh, guest casting. And, uh, you know, it's 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 really shame. What about you, Darren? Any episodes that you, you single out as being really, uh, you know, I, I look forward to the future of having one. Because I enjoy your your guys' enthusiasm about it, so I, I am gonna I am gonna be able to uh, watch it through now and uh, enjoy it from the beginning. Well, before we wrap up, the one thing I want to say, you know, look, we lost a lot of uh, great actors from the show. It's really sad that you know Michael O'Hare passed away recently. Mira Furlon, who's super talented, uh, Richard Biggs, um, but the one that hit us hard, and you're not gonna hear this on any other podcast, was Jerry Doyle. Because of course, mm. oh, of course. other yeah, than Ashley, we had a remarkable <laughs> Jerry Doyle yes, experience. Uh, Rob and Darren oh, and Mojo boy. and myself, we 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 were um we were invited to a, a, a science fiction convention in Madison, Wisconsin, Mad over uh, MadCon over uh, over a Halloween weekend, and it's it's a mad it's crazy in, in 2011. He, I mean, it's 2001. Bribed, I think he bribed that the the bouncer. At the at that bar, well, like a hundred bucks to let us all in. Oh, like so, yeah. we're, so Jerry Doyle is just all about the fun. He used to be a hedge fund manager. He made a fortune. He didn't need to act. He just wanted to, and uh, and uh, you know he's really good in Babylon Five. Unfortunately, that whole arc where he hated Sheridan and he was being controlled by Bester went on way too long. But um, he he was a delightful guy. He was just happy. He was just happy working, fun loving online to go to this party. With Jerry Doyle, and he's like, "Fuck, I'm not waiting on. I'm, we're not waiting online." Well, yeah, he we goes, should say it was a bar. We're in Madison, Wisconsin, so it's a college town, and there's a huge line to get into what was apparently the best, most fun bar in the city on the main yeah, stretch. Huge, huge, huge line, and so he goes up to the doorman, <laughs> takes out a hundred dollar bill, says, "This is for you," and the kid just looks at him like, "What am I? What? I don't understand." He said, "You're gonna take it, and you're gonna let me and my friends in," and he goes. <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to do that. He said, that takes out another $100 bill. Here you go. Come on in, guys. That's how you get in front of the line. And the, the thing that I remember most, other than I feel like we went back to our hotels carrying a lot of beer that we'd stolen from a fraternity, was- um, A, a was fraternity just, was, that had about five inches of beer on the floor. Do you remember? Yes. That like, we no, were waiting. We were up up sitting on a dais. And he's like in this chair. Like he's like Colonel Kurtz. And it was just, it was mind We went to a frat party 
that the fraternity, I guess one of the kegs had exploded or something and literally all over the floor, all of the, And it was it was like it came up past your ankles. Well, you should have been. You should have been. Mind, we all out of college for over 10 years by now. This was like I mean, this literally was old school. This was you should have been there with Stephen first. This was actually this was in our, this was in October of 2001 because Steve Krasir went went with us and they kept right, stopping right. him thinking wow. he was a, a, an Arab terrorist. We, we told <laughs> we told the story is right it's three weeks after 9-11 oh and, 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 and we were, one of our other uh, guests was Steve Krasir. And that was when because he has vaguely Arab features in Middle Eastern features. And so uh, he's, he's a Jew from Chicago. But so this is the greatest thing. So they pull him aside, to, you know, off the off this plane, and and Harlan Ellison comes out and says, "What are you doing? This guy's a Jew from Chicago. He's not going to blow up the plane." And Steve and everybody was walking on eggshells because it was right after nine. And she's like, "Harlan, please don't help me." And, uh, and, and and it was so crazy because then we got on a plane and it was like ten people because we were going from. Uh, the uh, airport to Madison. We were going from a bigger airport to Minneapolis. Madison. Minneapolis. We were going Minneapolis. to a like, tiny little yeah. puddle jumper. And I remember, you know, Harlan was like, well, what was he going to do? How is he going to stand up with a gun? You can't even stand up in here. It's so small. <laughs> How is he going to hijack the plane? And everybody's like, Harlan, shut up. <laughs> Actually, I have to tell, since you brought him up, there was a bookstore, a great used bookstore in, if it was Milwaukee, I think it was Milwaukee, in the airport. And I went into the used bookstore by myself and I got a few books and Harlan Ellison comes up behind me. He goes, let me see what you're buying. And, and, and yeah. And I, I, I bought roll dolls, switch bitch, which was three novellas. And he looks at it and he goes, I go, he looks at me, he goes, you're all right, kid. Nice. <laughs> I remember it was like 10 years later, we ran into Harlan when he was promoting his city on the edge of forever graphic novel. And I think what Steve said to him, he said, oh, uh, Harlan, good to see you. I haven't seen you in a long time. He goes, uh, how do I know you? Because remember in Madison, you tried to help me with the TSA. Oh, we were going, oh, I remember you. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, your, your Ellison sounds like Marty Scorsese. <laughs> you know, oh, wow. Have you ever seen them in the same room together? That's true. Certainly not now. <laughs> but uh, that was that was a super fun trip. It I was mean, a no, really that, that was a. I, I mean, I think we put the convention out of business, but I, I, I think it was. Um, we had, we had, we had a really good time. I mean, that was like because it was right after nine eleven. Everything was really tense, and this is the first time I think any of us. I think it was well, Halloween. We, right? uh, you know. Yeah, it was uh, Halloween we were, weekend. Yeah, um, and, and yeah, Halloween we, is Halloween huge weekend. in Madison. Yeah, that's why the line around the was around the block at the bar, and it's like uh, everybody's like, "Oh, you're not getting in here for three hours." It's like, well, if you're with Jerry Doyle, you are. That was 20 years ago this year. Wow, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, Jerry Doyle taught me everything I know about getting into how to get into a bar. <laughs> um, but uh, Jerry was such a sweetheart. We had a he was the best. Such a good. I mean, I remember you know uh, just spending time with him on the set when I used to do those things for Cine Fantastic. But that was we really had a good time with him in, in Madison. Um, he was, and I, so he really, I was really sad to hear. I mean, he's, he was a big right wing nutcase and he had a, a conspiracy theory talk show on, and I think he settled in Vegas and had a, had a right wing talk, conservative talk show in, in Vegas. And I still liked him, which shows you what a great guy he was. <laughs> um, so, uh, it was really sad. And then, you know, we've told this story before Richard Biggs, right, Rob? Uh, that was another thing. We we ran into Richard Biggs in Vegas when we were Sci-Fi Universal was doing Sci-Fi Kids Day. 
doing a charity event at the MGM Grand with a bunch of sci-fi celebrities. And we completely, he was just there in Vegas hanging out like ran into him on on the the bridge, the bridge. The sky bridge between the MGM Grand and New York New York and literally <laughs> said hey we're doing this charity event it for was kids. Lisa Reen you know, did for it. kids yeah and you Lisa you know Reen. you want to come and you know uh, participate hang out raise, help raise money for kids at, at this thing it'll be like you know it'd be on a panel and Richard Biggs was like sure why not <laughs> it was great yeah. Anyway, was... well, look, this was great. Mojo, it's so great to have you on the show. We're going to have to have you back talk about your Star Trek experiences. Absolutely be great. Yeah. So uh, a, lot of, a lot of good memories. A lot of good memories. Uh, this, is, this is fun. So uh, I want to thank everybody for listening to Inglorious Trexperts. New episodes every Friday, wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can watch it for free on the Electric Now app. The video versions on the Electric Now app. Uh, you can follow us on social media at Inglorious Trek, on Twitter, Inglorious Trexperts, on uh, Instagram, or on Facebook. And of course, I hope you'll listen to some of our other podcasts like the 430 movie, the best movies never made and the rebel and the rogue, wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, But until next week, on behalf of Mojo, Ashley, Robert, Darren and myself, Mark A. Altman, keep on trekking. Inquiry, of course, all alone in the night. (laughs) Engage. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.